You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back today Brian Zond to share his experience in leading a five-session live stream study on his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. In the live stream, the daring BZ took on five hot-button topics, the wrath of God, Old Testament violence, the violence of the cross, hell, and the book of Revelation. Anyone interested in seeing the five-part series can go to wolc.com, wolc.com, and for a donation of any amount, gain access to it. Each session was about an hour and a half. In the first part, Brian laid out the big issue, and in the second part, he answered live stream questions from the live stream audience. A future live stream event is planned for Brian's book, When Everything is on Fire. Welcome back, BZ, Brian Zond, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. It's good to be with you. Well, what I'd like to do is get at these five hot-button topics by giving you some caricatures of each of them, and then you can comment and improve on the caricatures as you see fit. So let's begin with the wrath of God. That's when God gets really, really mad at us because we continually mess up. When he gets really worked up, he turns into fire and smoke. And then sometimes in his fury, he drowns nearly all of us or strikes us dead or wipes out whole groups of people or sends some type of terrible punishment on us. So his wrath is really just his ability to be perfectly angry with us, possibly perfectly angry forever. And this perfect, inexhaustible anger is driven by our fallenness and our disobedience. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's a unfair characterization of the position millions of Christians sincerely hold on the wrath of God. And I'm sympathetic in that I understand there's a way to read the Bible that will look like that. It's not a theologically sophisticated position. It's it's not in any way compatible with the ultimate revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So that's what we have to do. We have to, we have to start somewhere and work with it. Um, here's the thing, David. Here's who is interested in what I say, either in my book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, or the online course, which they're not exactly the same. I mean, the book is going to cover more things more deeply, I suppose. Um, the, the course is a little bit different. It's, it doesn't completely like follow the chapters of the book. Um, but here's who I think was interested. And by the way, a lot of people were interested. I mean, nearly 2,000 computer, computers registered for this thing, mm-hmm. which I found uh, interesting. It, it means that there is an appetite for some sort of honest, serious capable discussion on these matters. And I think who's drawn to what I'm trying to say here are people who have an intuition, one way or another, that when we speak of God and claim that He is fully revealed in Jesus Christ, they are sympathetic with that. 
They think, you know what? I think that God is just like Jesus. I believe that's true. They have an intuition for that. I might call it even uh, a witness of the Spirit. And yet, they have their Bibles. And they're not, they're not wanting to just you know, get rid of Scripture. And so they have these questions. I think, I think very few people either read Sinners in the Hands of Loving God or you know, participated in the online course who weren't already somewhat sympathetic to what I'm saying and hopeful that I might even be right, because that's, that's what they're longing for. And yet they want to, they want to go about this honestly. And so they're saying, okay, what about these five issues? That, what about the wrath of God? What about Old Testament violence? What about the supposed divine violence of the cross? What about hell? That's the big one. And what about the book of Revelation? So the way you presented the wrath of God, I think, I mean, yeah, I don't think it's accurate at all. You and I know this, <laughs> on this but I, I don't think it's terribly unfair uh, of a characterization that a lot of people have. Because there is one kind of literal reading of especially portions of the Old Testament, but I wouldn't limit it to the Old Testament, that could lead a person to think that way. That's why we have to be able to think somewhat theologically. And for those that think, well, you, you know, BZ is just, uh, you know, towing some sort of progressive line, that's just not true. I mean, you just don't know me, if that's what you think. Um, this, is, this is more in keeping with the church fathers, who were so committed to the impassibility of God and the immutability of God. These two characteristics that were so important among the church fathers that they regularly would refer to the wrath of God as a kind of metaphor. So that, yeah, okay, Scripture can talk about God, you know, in all kinds of metaphorical ways, which, by the way, we that's, how, that's really the recourse we have until we reach the incarnation in Christ. We have to speak of God according to analogy and metaphor, but just remember, the moment you literalize a metaphor, uh, you're saying something that's untrue. And so God can be described as a rock, or as a hen, or as a farmer, or as a husband, or as a charioteer in the skies. I mean, all of those are helpful metaphors in one way or another, but if you literalize them, well, no, it's not true. So does God, quote, lose his temper? Well, no, God does not lose his temper. That would That would make him mutable and passable in a way that the church father said God is not. So the wrath of God, we can say several things about it. The first thing I would say is it is divine consent to our own rebellion and the consequences that then do follow. All right? So, so that's what I would first say about that. I, I'm I'm not though. I'm really not afraid to say though that that there is a disposition of God toward that which is destructive among human beings that could be properly described as anger. What the real question in all of these, David, it actually gets down to violence. Does God actually employ malicious violence? to achieve his purposes. And that's really what we're questioning. Uh, I think the wrath of God, though, is, a, is at times a helpful metaphor. I'll, here's, here's just one example of how we might... I mean, I think most people are 
are are have some sense of compassion for what the uh, Russian, what the Ukrainian people are suffering at the hands of essentially one man, Vladimir Putin. And are we to say that God has no particular <laughs> opinion about the matter? No, I think that I think there there would be some sort of wrath of God. Okay, I, I've, I've rambled on and on, David. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, one of the things that I found helpful is thinking about the wrath of God as wrath as I think the Greek word is orge, mm-hmm. and and so it that that connotes a very strong emotion. Yeah, and so when it comes to ridding. When it comes to God ridding evil, the presence of evil in God's children and God's creation, ultimately, that God is very passionate yeah. about that. It is not satisfied with a partial victory with regard to evil in his children or his creation. And so right. um, George MacDonald, I've appreciated the way he puts this. He says, no, there is no escape. There is no heaven with a little of hell in it. No place to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out, Satan must go, every mm-hmm. hair and feather. Yeah. Yeah, I, of course, I just adore George MacDonald. I, from where I sit, I see one, two, three, four, <laughs> four George MacDonald books just right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I love George MacDonald, and I think he's right. And... Um, I mean, there there is there is a a a problem with the wrath of God when we see God as uh, having a malevolent attitude toward what I might just describe as a garden variety sinner, you know, mm-hmm. someone who has not attained moral perfection quite yet, and yet we think that God has a seething wrath and anger toward that. You can find that in certain strains of Calvinism. I think that just has to completely be rejected, and people have suffered under some of that. And but it's easy then to react too far, and to arrive at a place where God is essentially anemic, where God um, has no zeal, no passion, um, and and that would be. I mean, there's nothing in Scripture or in the life of Christ that looks remotely like that. So, um, the wrath of God. What about the wrath of God? Um, I think it's, it's, it's connected to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And in some ways, it's the beginning of taking many things seriously. First of all, God seriously, but also just life and our own sense of agency and realizing that there are consequences to our actions. And that's a good place to be. We begin by encountering God in the, with, with, with a, the mysterium tremendum, uh, you know, the, the, the trembling mystery. And that's, that is a holy way to first approach God, but it's not the end of the journey. As we continue on the pilgrimage of coming to know the living God, we eventually arrive, you know, in 1 John, where where the confession is perfect love casts out all fear and once we have a revelation of the perfect love of god we may be um we may have the fear of the lord in the sense of i fear my own capacity to harm others or myself if i begin to divert 
from the trajectory that God calls me upon, but I have no fear of God himself as if he were going to harm me. And uh, I, have an, I have an icon in my study. I have a lot of icons in my study, but I have, only have one of a saint. I have, I have one of Saint Anthony. And, you know, you've seen these orthodox icons with their, their regal beards and, you know, how they look. And often they're holding a scroll that has one of their famous sayings on it. Well, and, they, and usually it's in Greek, but this one's in English. But it is a quote from Saint Anthony, you know, that desert father, who says, I no longer fear God, for I love God. And... Um, you know, if if just you know, if John Shelby Spong says that, it means one thing. But when Saint Anthony the Great says it, it means maybe <laughs> something else, right? So that's that's a wonderful place to be able to arrive at uh, if you arrive at it honestly. You don't take cheap shortcuts uh, because that that begins to verge almost on a kind of practical atheism. Uh, we we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. I mean, so so there is a certain holy dread in that. That, that my life will be examined, and I will stand in the presence of pure light. Um, but I also understand that the one from whom this pure light of judgment emanates has nothing but love for all of his I, I think Yeah, I think another thing that George MacDonald said, if, I'm, if I remember it correctly, was that if we understood correctly the nature of the judgment fire of God, we would run to it. Yeah, yeah, right. That's, yeah, I love that. All right, let's move to Old Testament violence. Mm -hmm. In the Old Testament times, the world was filled with lots of evil. Evil saturated everything, and so God had to send a flood and start over with just a handful of the faithful. And there were evil groups of people that rose up, so he authorized his chosen holy people to rid the evil of this earth through the sword if necessary. And so God still calls his people to rid the earth of evil through the use of the sword or through the use of whatever violent means are necessary. Uh, yeah, a lot of people will certainly believe that. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, here's the thing, David. I actually read the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I read it a lot. I, I, I'm not talking about sermon preparation or, you know, when I'm studying something for writing a book. I just... I mean, every morning I read the Bible 30 to 45 minutes a day, every day, just to stay immersed in the text. So I'm pretty familiar with actually what it says. <laughs> and there is a lot. There's not a little bit of violence. There's a lot of violence in both Testaments, but particularly the Old Testament. Because that's why we speak of the issue of Old Testament violence. Um, so if you want... If you want to find a divine endorsement for your own violence or your own nation's violence or whatever you know violence you particularly like, uh, sure, there's a way to sort of ransack the Bible and come up with verses that will seem to support your position. Uh, but you know, what can't you support? by just plucking out a verse here and there. Remember, you can, you can also support the institution of slavery, etc. cetera. Uh, not just violence. You, you, can, you can endorse genocide, okay? <laughs> you, so what we have to do, if I'm just going to cut to the chase, is we have to understand what the Old Testament is. Now, now if you want to believe that the Old Testament is simply... God dictating 
perfectly and humans just acting as secretaries and writing it down, and there you have it, the word from on high. If you, if you want a hold of that, I don't know that I can help you much. I know not you, David, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking to our, to our audience here. Um, but that's going to be problematic anyway, because you're going to run into all kinds of contradictions. I think of the Old Testament primarily as the inspired, yes, I use that word, the inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know the living God, but inevitably along the way assumptions are made. Uh, I don't see God doing anything by uh, full coercion, all right? So he, God doesn't relate to human beings in that way, because if he does so, then we simply become puppets, and we are, in effect, just a movie playing in God's head. Uh, in, in the daring move, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. This involves human beings endowed with real, authentic freedom. And that touches every area of life, including the inspiration of Scripture. There is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there, but there is also the human factor. And so that it is a kind of a dance. Uh, the composition of Scripture, inspiration works as a divine dance. Well, a divine and human dance, but sometimes sometimes the, the human partner steps on God's toes. Um, also, remember, we are reading the Old Testament at a distance of, you know, 2,500, 3,000 years, and things have changed. I mean, we're not in the late Bronze Age anymore. And the assumptions that were made about God were universal assumptions. And so there is a scholarly way of reading the Old Testament where you see that initially Elohim and Yahweh, and these are two names for what probably they assume is the same deity, the northern tribes, speaking of Elohim, which is, by the way, is in the plural, that's interesting, and the southern tribes being more speaking of Yahweh, that's Lord in all caps in, in your Old Testament English translation. And initially, this God, Elohim Yahweh, is more or less a tribal deity. Uh, monotheism isn't on the scene to begin with. Uh, it's just that this is their God, and their God they believe is the most powerful, but God seems to behave much in the same manner as Baal and all the rest of the Canaanite gods. It's just that they believe that their God is more powerful, and their God is on their side. And so commands of genocide and all that are par for the course. But as we continue through the story that the Old Testament is telling, we begin to get different ideas. We become more sophisticated. We, we begin to get a clearer and clearer and clearer revelation of this true and living God. And then as we cross into the New Testament, we as Christians are going to confess, okay, finally, now we have the perfect revelation because we have the perfect Word of God. That is the Word made flesh, who is Jesus. So, um, and I, I do this in the, both in the book and I also do it in the course. I ask this I just have this thought experiment. I mean, I, I take people to uh, to First Samuel. Is it is it fifteen? I believe, at where where as the story is told, it is 
God tells the prophet Samuel to tell King Saul that he's decided to punish the Amalekites for something they did centuries earlier, okay, centuries earlier. And so now the centuries later descendants of these Amalekites are to be punished in this manner. They are to be annihilated. And the command, as it is told, from God through Saul to or through Samuel to Saul is that they are to go forth and kill all the men, women, children, and babies. It actually for 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 the for the human targets of this assault, it puts them in those four categories. Go kill all the men. Well, you know, that's kind of the way war works. And we, we may be somewhat numbed that, but we go, okay, that's that's war. Men go forth and kill men. Kill all the men, kill all the women. Ah, uh, now we're beginning to squirm a little bit, I think. Kill all the children. <laughs> and then kill all the babies. Okay, these are war crimes things. You're going to end up in the Hague. You do this. There, there isn't anybody out there today who believes that killing women, children, and babies in a reprisal attack based upon supposed crimes that were centuries earlier is anything but grossly immoral. Christians, though, who have not learned how to read their Bible uh, through the lens of Christ, sometimes feel obligated to try to defend those things, and they're indefensible. And the thought experiment I give them is, if God told you to kill babies, would you? And look, there's only one answer. The answer must be no. If you say yes, then... Then I'm nervous about you. I'm worried about you. Uh, but if you say no, I wouldn't kill babies. Then you're in this situation where you have to, you have a predicament, and and you because you are claiming a morality that seems to be superior to what you're finding in certain passages of the Old Testament, which you should, by the way. But how? But how do you do this? Well, there's three options. One, you can question the morality of God in the sense that you say, okay, ordinarily killing babies is wrong, but when God tells you to do it, you can suspend the ethical and it's permitted. Um, I think that is ludicrous nonsense, and I, I think you're just playing games. I don't think anybody actually believes that. They may sit in a theological discussion and say they believe that, but if they really believe it, well, then it's horrible. And what it does, it leaves the door ajar for further atrocities in the modern era. And I give some examples in the book of how that has happened, that, that this is how the English colonists justified their genocidal treatment of the native inhabitants of North America. They said, well, you know, sometimes God tells you to go out and wipe out a people, and they can cite chapter and verse out of, you know, the Bible. Uh, I can't go down that road. I know that killing babies is wrong. You know killing women and children and babies is wrong. Everybody knows that. So I don't want to hear I'll even I'll even say killing men is wrong. Well, yes, I will too. That I was just I was just you know, I was just willing to say, okay, that's kind of normal warfare. Okay, so the second option is well, we can question the immutability of God, that God perhaps does change, that God used to do this. God has a history of violence, but now he has changed, and this is not something God does any longer. There are people that take that position. Uh, I don't know if they would say I've fairly represented it, but I think I have. I think that's what they basically are saying. Um, 
Well, I'm just too conservative for that. I, I am not one who believes that God is in the process of growth, change, and development. I actually do hold to the very conservative, patristic position of the immutability of God. That it may at times look like God is changing, but it's not God that's changing. We are the ones that are changing. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, you watch the sunrise and the sunset, but it's not the sun that is actually in movement that creates that phenomenon. It's we who are in movement, the earth that's in movement. So if you can't question the morality of this and you can't question the immutability of God, then that leaves really only one option. And that is we have to question what we mean by the inspiration of Scripture, and we have to question how we come to read Scripture and how it must be subordinate to the true Word of God, which is Jesus Christ. All right, well, so let's move are, on. That's, that's, my, that's my little tirade on that. Okay. <laughs> well, let's move on to the violence of the cross, because it's connected. It's yeah. a connected idea. Okay, so here's, here's, here's a take on the violence of the cross. Mm-hmm. God is perfectly holy, and when he is sinned against, he needs to have a violent blood sacrifice made to him to set things right again. That's just the way God is. He can only have his honor restored and be able to forgive sin against his holiness if a commensurate act of violence is committed against an animal or ultimately against a person. This violence, represented by the shedding of blood, restores his honor and dignity. But the animal sacrifices only work for so long, so he sent his own perfect son to earth, so so that by shedding his own sins, innocent blood on the cross, he was finally able to not need any more sacrifices. So now he can perfectly forgive everyone who will have faith in his son before they die. But if they don't have faith in his son before they die, then he has no choice but to eternally pour out his wrath on them in an eternal hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is what many Calvinist influenced, they don't have to be Calvinist, but Calvinist influenced Christians in the West over the last you could say a thousand years, more like 500 years, have come to believe. It's not a historic understanding of the cross in any way. Uh, I, I heard in, in your presentation of that, I heard the echo of Anselm in there, who was, he was a thousand years ago, he's the Bishop of Canterbury, and he was, he was worried about God's honor because he lives in this feudal society of shame, honor, and his thought was, because he's answering the question why God became human. And he said, well, because humanity has offended the honor of God. And so God, to reclaim his honor, must gain satisfaction upon an equal. It'll help you to think in terms of, of a medieval period. And so if, if, if a peasant insults a prince... The prince's honor has been impugned, but the prince cannot regain his honor by punishing the peasant because they're not equals. They're not social equals. And so the prince has to find perhaps another prince that this peasant was connected to. You know, and he walks up to him, takes off his gloves, slaps him in the face and says, give me honor, sir. (laughs) And they have to have a duel or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, all that sounds pretty archaic to us. But that's really the roots of this. This is where this comes from. And then with Calvin, uh, it, it takes on more of the component of wrath and the idea of satisfying justice. So, so the, the very first thing you said, um, among the very first things in that presentation, was God cannot 
just forgive. I, how did you say it? God, uh, I, I said that. Um, let's see. God needs to have a violent God blood needs, sacrifice yeah. uh, to made to him to set things right. That's just the way God is. He can only have his honor restored and be able to forgive sin against his holy holiness if a commensurate, commensurate act of violence is committed against an animal or ultimately against a person. Yeah, I just think that's a, a false assumption. I just think that's that is a pagan understanding of sacrifice. I don't mean that in just kind of a cheap pejorative way. I mean that in an that's a Gentile pagan understanding of sacrifice. It's what N.T. Wright in his book The Day the Revolution Began calls a pagan soteriology. That is, he means it is influenced by pagan thought not Hebrew thought. So, for example, perhaps the most... Um, the, the, the concept of sacrifice that most closely aligns to how Christians speak of Christ as a sacrifice is the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, there in Exodus. And, and in fact, that's you know drawn upon by New Testament writers in various places, and Jesus is the Lamb of God, etc. But let's keep in mind, the, the, the Passover Lamb is not being punished. The, the Passover lamb is being sacrificed to provide the covenant meal. The command is not, you shall take a male of the first year from your flock, you shall bring it into your house, and then thou shalt scourge it, and thou shalt make a little crown of thorns and put it upon its head, and thou shalt nail it you know, to a cross. No, no, you're not torturing the lamb. The lamb is being sacrificed to, play, to provide the place, well, the covenant meal, but the, 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 the lamb isn't being punished. And so what, what has happened is we have somehow uh, viewed the cross as God punishing Jesus so that God doesn't have to punish us. And what you there's a lot of things wrong with that, but one of the things that's wrong is it makes God subordinate. People say God can't just forgive. You know what? God can. God can just forgive. And God does, in fact. Uh, maybe the simplest way to say it is, the cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as He forgives. So where do we find God the Father on Good Friday? Is He working through who? Is He, is he working through Pontius Pilate to condemn is he working through uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, to accuse? Who's, where do we find him? We find him in the Son. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And so the violence of the cross is purely human. The divine forgiveness that occurs at the cross is entirely divine. I think of the cross, I mean, there's a lot of ways to think of the cross, but it's certainly the place where human sin reaches its pinnacle, coalesces into a hideous singularity that it might be forgiven in mass. And so, even though the Father knows that the Son coming into the world will eventually have all of these things happen, be rejected, spat upon, condemned, crucified, the Father knows this, but that doesn't mean that it is the Father's will that human beings act that way toward the Son. What it means is the Father simply knows that when a 
perfectly righteous man comes into this world of sin, that will be his end. But not only did you don't you don't have to be divine to know that because Plato knew that. Plato knew that. In a conversation with his brother, there's this moment where they're talking about what would happen if a perfectly just man came to Athens to their society. And the answer is he would be beaten, scourged, spit upon, and after all manner of torture would be crucified. That's exactly what Plato says, crucified. And so even Plato, you know, what, 350 years before Christ, says a perfectly righteous man comes into this world of violence and sin, he's going to end up crucified. So um, the, the cross is the place of forgiveness, but the Son is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father. The Father is immutable. The Father doesn't change. What the Son does is always reveals the Father. This is the Gospel of John on nearly, you know, in, on every page. Jesus is saying repeatedly in John's Gospel, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what the Father says. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And so Jesus reveals the Father. He never acts as an agent of change upon the Father. And so part of what's wrong with this penal substitutionary atonement theory, this relatively modern misunderstanding of the cross, is that not only is it wrong, it tends to, it tends, it's like an invasive species within theology that tends to crowd out all other meanings. And one of the things that stands out very clearly in the New Testament is that the cross is the place where the principalities and powers are shamed. You know, we we always um, we always depict in visual artistry in the crucifixion, Jesus is at least somewhat clothed. Well, we know this is not how Romans did it. See, it's even too scandalous for us today. Uh, people who were crucified were always stripped naked, and this was part of the shame that was heaped upon them. I but did the a, yeah. I did a uh, a midweek uh, Lenten. Uh, presentation one time for uh, you know Holy Week services, mm-hmm. and as part of my presentation, I said, "Now, one of the things about the crucifixion that we need to understand is that it wasn't just to inflict pain, but it was also to inflict shame." And this mm-hmm. is something we don't talk about, but Jesus was crucified completely naked. Yeah, and we can't even bring ourselves, you know, no. to depict to depict that, but that was part of it. Yeah, well that, that even that even today that would seem unseemly and I agree with it. But that, that you're making the point. Well, what Paul does and others, but Paul most explicitly, what he does is say no. It was not Jesus Christ who was put to shame. It was the principalities and powers. It was reversed. And because the principalities and powers represented by Pontius Pilate, uh Joseph Caiaphas, and uh, King Herod, all and they are, they are representative figures. They claim to have the right to rule because they are wise and just. We are wise and just. That's why we, we should run the world, because we're wise and just. And the cross strips that claim off of them. And they are revealed for what they really are. They are just committed to a naked bid for power. And the cross shames all that. Now, that's not all that the cross does, but it's part of what the cross does. But with penal substitutionary atonement theory, you end up exonerating the principalities and powers. 
they go scot-free. None of that shame is is born, is placed upon those that actually should be put to shame. I, I, just, I guess here's, what, here's how I would bring this little point to a close. I would say, God did not kill Jesus. God did not ask. I mean, you end up with the problem of God being subordinate. God said, okay, look, I'd love to forgive you guys, but i got to satisfy justice. i got to satisfy justice. Well, it's like, well, who's in charge here? <laughs> well, excuse me, God, I, I, thought, I thought you were in charge. I thought you were the ultimate. I thought you were the almighty. I guess I need to talk to your manager. I need to talk to justice. So bring justice over here. <laughs> See, you, you make God beholden to this kind of this abstract concept of justice, and it's very interesting. Americans have a hard time of thinking about justice as anything other than retributive punishment. So first of all, you have that problem. You have, you have God beholden to something beyond it. And, but then, then it comes about, God says, okay, okay, I, I, I'll forgive. I want to forgive, but we've got to satisfy justice. So um, we have to have a death. Well, can it be quick and easy? Mm, no, no, it's got to be, gotta be painful. Uh, crucifixion, yeah, yeah. You know what? You know what? I want a scourging first. Oh yeah, thorns. I need a crown of thorns. Well, see, it becomes absurd after a while. Because mm -hmm. what kind of monster is this? And of course, this this theology does tremendous damage to the doctrine of the Trinity. You you are pitting the Father against the Son. It's as if the it's as if the parable of the prodigal son needs to be told like this. The prodigal son goes off and squanders the inheritance, comes to his senses, he's on his way back. The father sees him at a distance. His heart feels compassion. He runs to the servant's quarters where he beats the hell out of a whipping boy and satisfies his wrath and then is able to go and embrace his son. No, there, there's, there's none of that. There's no, there's no satisfaction of justice anywhere in that Terrible. Or he has to go and he has to go and slaughter the. He says, I, "I I can forgive you, but I need to go and slaughter the the fatted calf." That's 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 the place of covenant and celebration. The person who's angry in that parable is the elder brother, because he's convinced that justice has not been satisfied, and that's why he won't come to the party. Because why? Because the father just forgave. There is no payment. There, there is no, the father doesn't get paid back. The squandered inheritance is squandered. It's gone. And there's, there's nothing that's going to bring it back. For the father in the prodigal, the parable son, what suffices as justice is the restoration of the relationship through sheer grace. And it's the elder brother who can't accept that. And so as the party continues in the Father's house, he's outside, I would say, in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing his teeth. The Father goes to him, invites him to come in, but we don't know how the story ends, because it's now up to the elder brother to decide whether he will come to the party or not. Well, one of the things that's that's challenging when you get to the topic of sacrifice is that you can read parts of the Bible where it seems like God wants sacrifice right, and commands it. And then you can read parts of the Bible where it seems like, oh, wait a second, I never wanted that. I never wanted those sacrifices. Why did that's, you? That's why did you do that? You're on. Yeah. So yeah, if we ask the, we'll say we gather the contributors of the Old Testament canon, you know, whoever they all are, 
And we gather, let's, we'll have 10 of them kind of representative, some priests, some prophets, some psalmists, whatever. And we say, hey guys, uh, we've got you here together. We, I, we have a simple question David and I have for you. Uh, does God require ritual blood sacrifice? You guys draft your statement, answer our question. We're going to go out for a cup of coffee. We'll be back in 15 minutes. We come back 15 minutes later, and they're in a fist fight. <laughs> because they don't agree. They don't agree. I mean, I can take you to parts of the Torah where it says that God requires sacrifice and burnt offering for the forgiveness of sins. But then I can take you to Psalm 40, and the psalmist is going, burnt offering and sacrifice you have not required. You've opened my ears. And then you reach, finally you reach Hosea, who speaks boldly in the name of the Lord. In the name of Yahweh, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's, actually, what, Jesus, and that's what Jesus quotes twice. I actually had a conversation with somebody that was a little concerned about you, that <laughs> you uh, kind of throw out the Bible when it comes to sacrifice, because you say that God doesn't. God never required sacrifice when, Bi- when the Bible clearly says God does require sacrifice. That's what I mean when I say I actually read the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, there's another interesting question when you get to uh, this, that if God poured out all his wrath on Jesus at the cross, if, if you're going with that, right. then shouldn't God be over his wrath problem. But if he still needs to punish sinners in hell forever, then he must not have poured out all of his wrath on the cross. So did he pour out all of his wrath on the cross? Did he empty it all out or not? Well, you're asking the wrong guy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't, I just don't, I don't see the cross as the wrath of God. The cross is not what God inflicts upon his son in order to forgive. The cross is what God in the person of his son, endures as he forgives. Well, one of the things that was, as I've looked into uh, Christian universalism, that's what I call it. Uh, Apocatastasis is what you like to call it. But anyway, uh, I ran across some Puritan, I think it was John Owen, it may have been, who had the idea that, that if God poured out all of his wrath on the cross, then all would be forgiven. And that's not the case. And then I've run into some people who actually get to Christian universalism because they take right. that route. They say, that, so as uncomfortable as I am personally with the penal substitutionary atonement theory, I've run into people who come to a Christian universalist position through a yeah. penal. So you could even get a group well, of Christian this, universalists this together the, and they the would have L, This is the L in the Calvinist tulip, the limited atonement, which I have points of contention with all five of these points in five-point Calvinism, but none more fiercely than with their L, which is simply, they just made that up (laughs) to make their system work. They say, well, Christ only died for the elect. Okay, you can say that. It's not what Scripture says at all. The Scripture says the exact opposite. That, that he died for not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That, that he's the Savior of all men, especially of, the, of, of, of the, those who believe. So there is something about believing then that initiates your full participation in that salvation. But the idea that Jesus died for some and not for all, I mean, that's repudiated throughout the Bible. Amen. Right, 
<laughs> okay, let's go on to the topic of hell. Oh. Hell is where God punishes you forever because you are a sinner from birth who has inherited the sin of Adam, and you in your natural fallen state are an unwashed sinner who sins repeatedly and is like an incredibly repulsive bug to God. So hell is for the purpose of God demonstrating his glory by forever demonstrating his perfect wrath on fallen and guilty sinners who have in their rebellion not accepted Christ. And it all makes sense because sinners in sinning against an infinitely holy God bring upon themselves an infinite punishment. So God is just giving them what they deserve. That's that's a monstrosity. My goodness. Um, this makes hell. And first of all, don't let any don't let anybody say that BZ doesn't believe in hell. I do believe in hell. I believe we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe that uh, for the wicked, and and I don't use the wicked as a technical term for all non Christians. I mean those that really have given their lives over to wickedness, for them to encounter the judge of all um, will not be a fun day. It will, it will initially elicit weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe there is a purgatorial fire that I have no idea how long it takes to bring a sinner to repentance. But... Okay, let's just set that aside. We can talk about that if you want in a moment. But the idea of un—well, the term that's used, you know, in certain circles is eternal conscious torment. Okay, so eternal eternal is not a long time. You know, I, I don't know that we can actually conceive eternity, but we we know it's not a long time. So after you know a billion trillion years, you haven't taken one day off your sentence. Conscious, okay, you are you are not annihilated, but you stay conscious, aware, torment, torture. Why? An infinite punishment for a finite sin, no matter no matter how grievous the sin is, it's still finite. And you're gonna you're going to punish, not 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 for any not toward any hope of reclamation, not towards any idea of rehabilitation but just for the sake of punishment itself, eternal, conscious torture. That makes God a monster. That makes God the most malign creature conceivable in all the cosmos. I, think, I can't think of anything that is, that is a more vicious libel against the character of the God that Jesus calls Abba. And, and, and it, I mean, it serves no purpose. What is the point of it? <laughs> why, why, would you, why would God of his own accord sustain sentient creatures for the purpose of being tortured forever? I, I, I actually think that most people don't believe this. I think they try to convince themselves they do. And as long as you can just put it in the compartment of, well, we're, we're having a theological discussion, right? This is it. We're just we're having a theological discussion. Okay, this is what I subscribe to, because they think they have to. They don't, but they think they have to, to be orthodox. This is not true, but they think that. And so they give lip service to that. But then I think when they're done with the you know, the little parlor conversation on theology, they close that off, they close that door. Because I don't think you could go through life believing that, because this is the way they think, 
theologically, that the vast majority of human beings you encounter are destined for eternal conscious torment. I don't know how you would maintain your sanity. I, I just, I think, that is completely untenable. You, we cannot continue to speak. We can discuss what hell might be like and what we mean by that. And there's just there's so much to be said there. But the idea that a, I mean, then then get rid of your talk about being God a God of love. That's then you you've you've now crossed into the world of nonsense. A being who will for no positive benefit, torture other beings for eternity. This is not a God of love. <laughs> Just quit saying that. Just quit saying it. Uh, this, is, this is a monstrous God that we may fear, but we could never truly love. I'd just like to note that in Calvinism, grace alone saves, but it doesn't go to all. In, Ar- in Arminianism, grace goes to all, but it doesn't save alone. So right. in both Calvinism and Arminianism, we have a picture of a God who initiates a creation in which some, many, or most will not accept Christ. And then God is not surprised when this happened, and God puts them in an eternal hell. God had foreknown and planned for them right. from the beginning. That's terrible. I think I just think it's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's it's that is a monstrous doctrine that comes out of Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory where he was fooling around with concepts and created this. Uh, It just is an insult to this God that we claim is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. Speaking of Dr. Frankenstein, I I often connect Dr. Frankenstein with open theism, because in open theism, God releases the creation in kind of an experiment, calling it forth, not knowing what it will do, whether it will wreak tremendous havoc and be completely lost or whether it might turn out beautiful, but God doesn't know what exactly will uh, will happen. And so God is off the hook for hell because God yeah, open doesn't Open theism know. is just, it's nothing other than a theodicy. That's all it is. And I don't think it's at all accurate. <laughs> I, just, I just don't think it is. I, I think God... Simply, I mean, it's not that hard. To, it, I think God simply has a different relationship to time than we do. You know, they'll say, well, God doesn't know the future. Of course God does. I know the future of a lot of people. I know, I know Abraham Lincoln's future on Good Friday, 1865. <laughs> I know, you know, Ford Theater, John Wilkes Booth. I mean, I know that. I didn't cause it. I just have a different relationship to time, all right? And so I have no problem with God knowing all things, but that doesn't mean it's causal. We're off on a different subject here. I, I guess this is my point, David. I really am I, am, I really am orthodox. I really am conservative. I really am, you know, just a patristic theist. Uh, I believe that God is immutable, impassable, and that God is omniscient and God knows Right? I don't believe God tends to be coercive. Um, and so God is committed to not violating human freedom. Um, but I believe that once 
the, the human will and mind are liberated from that which has had it in bondage, distortions, wrong thinking, idolatrous ideas, that eventually, eventually, every free soul will call upon God for mercy and thus receive it. Um, I'm, I hold to my robust hope in the salvation of all, but only through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, is the Savior. The, the world will be saved because that's who Jesus is. He's the Savior of the world. Um, where for whatever reason, a lot of Protestants, and to a certain extent Catholics too, but have a problem is they just they think the work of salvation cannot continue after death. And I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, why? Why? Maybe that's the beginning, you know. Um, I, I mean, the sooner one confesses Jesus is Lord and begins to try to align their life with that, which is what repentance is, the better. <laughs> better to do it sooner than later. But I don't think the door is ever closed. Why would it be? You know, someone says, well, you know, the Bible says it's a point that all men die once and then comes the judgment. Yes, Hebrews 9.27. But then what? All right. So, so something occurs at death that brings us before the judgment. Judgment occurs. Then what? Then what? Maybe, maybe now the project of reclamation begins, and it may be very lengthy. Um, because th there is no cheap repentance. I think we do have to be honest about who we are, what we've made of ourselves, and then honestly turn from it. But as we do that, the mercy of God is always there. It's always there. I don't, I don't think anyone ever calls upon the name of the Lord in sincerity, asking for mercy, and is refused. I just can't, I can't conceive of that. And, and I don't just mean in this life. I mean that in the life to come. All right. Well, that, maybe this is a good time to jump to the book of Revelation. So here is my uh, here's my my summary of the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation. That's the last and most prophetic book in the New Testament. It was written two thousand years ago to look forward two thousand years to our time in coded language. It tells us that the world will end in a great modern warfare battle, where Jesus is going to come back ready to spill a giant river of blood. He may have been meek and mild in his first appearance, but next time he will make even John Wayne blush, riding a white horse and making war with the forces of evil in a final showdown. And when he's done spilling blood, there's the opening of the book of life. And if your name is in it, you get to go to forever heaven. But if your name is not in the book because you weren't a right standing Christian, then you go to a forever hell pictured as a lake of fire forever boiling with the ever-suffering souls of the damned. And then the new Jerusalem descends to the earth with its gates ever open so the saved can enter in and forever have a front row seat to the sufferings of the damned in the lake of fire. And that reminds them to thank God for his mercy, that they don't have to endure this just and righteous punishment in that ever-burning lake, plus also being of some entertainment value, at least according to what some Christians throughout history have thought. Okay, thank you very much, Hal Lindsey. <laughs> uh, well, a couple of things. All of the imagery in the book of Revelation is symbolic. Okay, so for example, if I ask somebody, do you believe that Jesus 
is literally a little lamb with seven horns, seven eyes, and a slit throat, but is still standing. Literally. Oh, no, I think, I think that's probably symbolic. All right. Uh, do you believe that literally a monster will come up out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns? Literally. I mean, like a Godzilla sort of situation here. Do you believe that? Well, no, I think that's probably symbolic of something. All right. Um, then why in the world do you believe that Jesus is literally going to fly upon a flying white horse and kill 200 million people with a sword that he holds in his mouth? You know, a mouth sword. <laughs> well, I mean, so, so I, I've... I've always thought about uh, someday maybe someday maybe I'll do it of going through the book of revelation and listing every single image I, I there must be hundreds and then I would I would list them you know and then I would say I'd have two boxes and it would say literal symbolic and you have to go through and you have to check one so you know ah, Jesus is is Jesus literally a seven-eyed seven-horned slaughtered lamb no uh, but is Jesus literally going to ride a flying white horse and kill people with a mouth sword? Yeah, I believe. And at the end of it, it would say, "Explain your system." <laughs> you know, no, it, th these these are images. And so, remember after after the uh, after they are slain by the word of Jesus, the fowls of heaven eat their flesh. I just to that I say Amen because I, I view myself as one who has been slain by the sword of the word that is Christ. And then I want the fowls of the earth to consume my flesh, not my embodiedness, but my carnality, that I might be raised to newness of life with Christ. All right, let's, let's, let's keep it for what it is, Jewish apocalyptic literature filled with symbol. And, and you took us all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, but you left out one little bit. You, 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 had, you had the lake of fire, you had the gates that aren't shut, and you say people have a front row seat to the sufferings of the damned, but you left out something. Hal Lindsey. <laughs> you, you left out that the spirit and the bride are in the city saying, if anyone is thirsty, come. Who are they saying it to? The people in the lake of fire. If you're thirsty, well, I'm in a lake of fire. Yeah. Well, then come. Now, you, you still have to come. And you, you, have to, you have to wash your robe in the blood of the Lamb. You have to enter through the gate. You, you're going to come through Christ, but if you're thirsty, come. The Spirit and the Bride, they say, come, come, come. And so the gates are never shut, and the invitation is ongoing so that the hope for salvation remains forever. Now, I'm not, doing, I'm not doing justice to the book of Revelation, but I've done a lot of stuff on the book of Revelation. You can find it. You can, you can you know, access at least yeah, you did four. I think you did four chapters of it in uh, Sinners yeah. in the Hands of yeah, the Living God. You spent a lot of yeah, three chapters in this in the book, and then there's an hour presentation with nine with thirty minutes of Q and A. If you want to access the online class, uh, but that's my basic response to that. One thing, I mean, I mean to, to use to to say that in the end, Jesus says, "You know what? You know what? That, that sermon on the mount. Well, that's crap." 
I'm going to just do what all of the conquerors of all of the ages have done, and I am just going to come with an army and kill the bad guys. Well, then, <laughs> what was this whole, what was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and, and the message of Christ, and the Sermon on the Mountain, death, burial, and the resurrection, what was that all about? If this problem is literally to be solved by just more <laughs> infliction of violence, then all the rest of it was pointless. And I don't, I mean, I think everyone would agree that the book of Revelation is a difficult book to interpret. If someone says, no, it's easy, I think, ah, I don't believe you. Um, so perhaps we should interpret the book of Revelation in the light of the Gospels, not vice versa. Not vice versa. When it comes to um, uh, Hal Lindsey, I, I grew up in high school from 1975 to 1979, and I, I wasn't a church-going kid, but I had church You're uh, about two years younger than me, I think. Yeah, 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 75, 79. So I, that late great planet Earth, that you showed in movie theaters in Irving, Texas. And so, you know, there was a lot of thought about that. And um, But I remember when I got to study the book of Revelation, that there was a, a, a striking sense of imminence that was yeah. in it if you take it Literally, it says uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants uh, what must soon take place. Revelation 1.1, throughout the revelation, the reader is told that the time is near. Revelation 1.3, that believers should hold fast until he comes. Revelation 2.25 and 3.11, that it will only be a little longer. Revelation 6.11, that all must soon take place. Revelation 22.6, that the Lord is coming soon. Revelation 22, 7, yeah. to not seal up the words of the book because the time is near. Revelation 22, 10, that Jesus is coming soon. Revelation 22, 12, and then finally at the very end, there's the promise, surely I am coming soon. Revelation 22, 20. So it seems to me that whatever it was about, it was a source of inspiration to Christians undergoing persecution to not give up um, in the midst of their trial, that God had not forgotten them in to me, that's one of the reasons that it was maybe preserved by the early Christian community, because it was such a, a source of inspiration to Christians who were actually being heavily persecuted. Right. Yeah, I mean, I go into this in more in depth in both the book and in the recordings. I would be of the opinion that, and, and the bulk of scholarship would side with me on this, that the book of Revelation is written during the reign of Domitian, somewhere in the mid to late 90s. But its setting is very clearly, uh, its setting, not its composition, its setting is during the tumultuous events of the A.D. 60s. And actually set during the reign of Galba, right before Nero. And so that's its setting. And it is, it is tied in with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Everything's kind of leading up to that. And so I think a lot of this soon language has to do with its setting in 65, 66, and then it's, or 68 actually, and then there is a kind of culmination with AD 70. Now, I also believe, though, that the book of Revelation does anticipate the global triumph of Christ, certainly over the Roman Empire. That, that's, that, that's the image at the end of the book, you mentioned that, of the city that has the same northwest, east, south dimensions of the Roman Empire coming down out of heaven. What's, what's fantastical, though, is also it's not only 1,500 miles, more or less, 
Um, it is it is fifteen hundred miles. I remember if you look up Stadia, you know, like you read yeah. and it says Stadia, and then you look at so what is what is a Stadia, and then you figure out the dimensions of this thing, and if it's a cube, my right. goodness. Well, <laughs> so what it is is it's it's the kingdom of Christ overlaying the Roman Empire, but it's also fifteen hundred miles high because it is uniting heaven and earth. That, I think that's the symbolism that's going on there. I'm not going to say. Oh, I'm I'm pretty confident that's what John the Revelator was up to with that one. That that there is an empire of Christ that will ultimately triumph over the empire of Rome. But this is one that it has its connections also in the heavens. It's not purely earthly. It's connecting heaven and earth. There's one there's one topic uh, that is sort of related to all of this, and I think you did touch on it a little bit. But it's the rapture, and the yeah. the rapture, as I like to put it, is. Um, when it, that when it comes to the fear of hell, the hell bone is connected to the rapture bone, and <laughs> and that's because it's harder to make it into the rapture than it is to make it into heaven. Because in order oh, to be raptured, because in, in order to be raptured, you have to be on fire for Jesus, because He will spit you out if you're if you were only lukewarm. And then if you have to go through the tribulation, you probably have to have your head cut off for Christ in order to get into heaven. Oh man. Now we've moved from Hal Lindsey into a Tim LaHaye. <laughs> and it's just getting worse. Um, left behind. Well, the rapture is a thoroughly modern doctrine. I mean, dang, it's barely 100 years old. Um, and it's a kind of a misreading of a few disparate passages in the New Testament most notably there in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul is working with this metaphor of Christ coming as, uh, as the emperor, because this is what it means for him to be Lord. And when the emperor comes, you the know, the goes forth to meet him and escort him into the city. So it's meet him in the air. It's, it's to cast it in modern parlance. It'd be like if some great dignitary came to your city, well, we would go meet them at the airport. You know, we would meet them at the airport, but not not, to, not then to get on a plane and fly away with them, but to welcome them and receive them. Right. And so we meet the coming of the Lord to earth, not, not to be snatched away, but to come and be reigning in the parousia, the, the final appearing of Christ. Um, yeah, the, the rapture doctrine has done a lot of damage. It is fairly easy to show that it's not at all historical. I think N.T. Wright, you know, he's done a lot of work in a lot of different fields, but I think his work with trying to uh, give us a better eschatology is maybe some of the very best things he's done, and his best book on that is Surprised by Hope. Um, as I look over my life, as being a pastor now for going on 42 years, there's been a lot of changes and tweaks. But I tend to think of it like, I think I tend to think of it as growth, development, uh, more sophisticated thinking in my theology. But there's one compartment of my theology that I say, no, I took the wrecking ball to it. It was raised down to the foundation and we just, because there was nothing salvageable. And that was my eschatology. I received, I had, we're about the same age. We came, you know, to the Lord in the same kind of movement probably or something similar. And 
man, in the 70s, it was all about this goofy, late great planet Earth, and then later it morphs into Left Behind in the whenever that came about, in the 90s, I guess. And that is a that is pop theology gone horribly off the rails. <coughs> and so if, if you want to learn, you can learn. If you want to read the good books, you can read the good books. If you want to become serious about New Testament scholarship as it speaks to eschatology, you can do that. If you want to stay in Looney Tunes land, I guess you can, but understand that you're doing so without the historic church, without the wider church, without any patristic credibility. You have simply adopted a, a fabulist doctrine that arrived on the scene somewhere around the beginning of the 20th century. You, and it's, in, it's, the, in the live stream, you recommended a certain book on the rapture. Uh, the, you, yeah, the, the Rapture Exposed by Barbara Rossing. Barbara Ross, she's a uh, Lutheran scholar. His excellent book. I, I thought it was so good that when it came out, I bought an entire case of it. <laughs> I think it's like 24 books, and I, I gave them out to people I thought it would be helpful. And then as a as a leadership team at our church, <clears throat> excuse me, we uh, we made a book study of it. We went all the way through it. Let me ask you this question. This is a kind of related to uh, these topics, that if, if God knows the beginning, as Isaiah 46.10 <laughs> suggests, um, and if there is going to be an apocatastasis there's and a restoration and God will be all in all as first Corinthians 15, 28 suggests. So if God has mm -hmm. always known that all will finally be well, then why does God allow so much violence and evil to take place on his watch when it seems that God has the power to stop all the violence and evil at any point along the way? Well, this is, this is the question that theodicy tries to respond to. And, the only theodicy, ultimately, I think that works is that God does not, um, God does not hold Himself aloof, but participates fully in human suffering. This is part of what we see at the cross. But I think ultimately, you're going to have to make some appeal to human freedom, and I don't know that we realize how easily that can be lost. And once God becomes fully, regularly interventionist, then it begins to beg the question, are we real <laughs> as authentic beings? Or are we really, as I said earlier, just characters in a movie that's playing in God's head? So why does God allow and then fill in the blanks? Well, maybe the first answer would be because God allows everything. And this is, this is the price into authentic being. That if, that if part of authentic being is free will and sentient creatures that bear the image of God, then anything can happen, and it seems like almost everything does happen. Uh, our hope is, indeed, for a restoration of all things, that, this, that, the, that the story is not over. It's not been fully told. We're still right in the middle of it. Uh, and then there is some comfort, I think, to be derived from the fact that God does not exclude himself from this, fully participates in the suffering with us. Um, this is what we see in Christ. I don't know how, though, you... I don't know how we have authentic being without free will, and if free will doesn't 
include the possibility of great pain and suffering, then I don't. Then I know. I, I think it's just the price for admission into the phenomenon of real being. But the story hasn't yet been fully told. So I don't know said, that. That's a, I, by the way, I don't know that that's a satisfying answer. I just don't know of a more satisfying one. I don't know. I don't know what else you would say. I think you have, and, th- and of course, this is as much as anything. This is what, well, much of what the brothers Karamazov is about, and this is the the play back and forth between Ivan Karamazov, the intellectual, presumably atheist brother, and his younger uh, novice monk brother Aloysia. And Dostoevsky, who was a very you know devout, committed Orthodox Christian, uh, attacks Christianity through his character Ivan Karamazov just as fiercely as he can. I mean, you cannot accuse Dostoevsky of raising straw man arguments because he he was not he wasn't setting up a straw man that he could easily defeat. He made his task of trying to defend Christian faith in the, in, the, in the reality, in the presence of the reality of suffering, the suffering of innocent, the suffering of children, uh, as difficult as possible. And then his reply to that is not direct, but it comes through the sermons and homilies and wisdom of uh, Zosima, the elder in the monastery there. And a little bit just through, you see the work of uh, Alyosha with the children. Now, I'm, if you haven't read the Brothers Karamazov, none of this is going to mean anything to you. But I'm, I'm going to say that's that is a good source if you're up to reading a thousand-page Russian novel. <laughs> but it is also a theological tome as well. So I, I recently had a discussion with a fellow Christian who was concerned that in my Christian universalism, I might be overstepping the bounds of what could be said about God's goodness because. Maybe I'm not in a position to judge God's goodness. And his point was that God operates in ways beyond our understanding and that God is sovereign and therefore not subject to our evaluation. And he used the example of the book of Job to make his point. So, Brian, are we as humans in a position to judge God's goodness? Um, I'm sympathetic to the point that your friend has made. I think we there needs to be a certain amount of humility, and that um, whereas Job was blameless, that's to be kept in mind. We're told that at the beginning of the story, um, he does seem to venture upon blaming God at some point, and that that seems to be quelled in the overawing whirlwind speeches of God to to Job. And I think there's some fairly sophisticated things going on there that that Job is able to reach a point where he said, well, I don't I don't see the end of all things as you do. And so I, I retract any accusation I may have laid at the feet of the, the divine and I humble myself. And then, you know, let's, let's not forget that, that Job also is a picture of apocatastasis. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, and, and remember, remember at the end of the book of Job, everything's restored doubled, mm-hmm. right? Double the sheep and the goats, but not, but not the children. The children, he doesn't get 14 children back. He gets seven children. And I think that's a hint of resurrection is what that actually is. 
Because, you know, you can't tell a grieving parent, well, just have another kid. <laughs> you, you've lost this child, just have another one. Well, no, that doesn't satisfy. So I think that 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 everything is in, in material objects, his possessions, he received back double. But with the children that were given to him after this ordeal remain at the number seven, I think that's a way of hinting at these aren't seven new children, these are resurrected. So even the book of Job does end with a apocatastasis hope. On the other hand, I wouldn't say God did give us a conscience. And um, if I say a being creates other beings for the purpose of pouring wrath upon them in the form of eternal conscious torment, if I call that as immoral, uh, it's not that Oh, God's ways are higher than my ways. No, I'm I'm using my capacity to make moral judgment that is God-given. So I'm not saying that we understand all ends and how God might be working in all things, but to call good evil and evil good. No, the if God created beings for the purpose of torturing them eternally to his glory, as they would add. And if I call that evil, not good, it's because God gave me at least a modicum of capacity to know good from evil. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess what I would invoke the mystery argument when I don't personally understand why God has to allow the depth of evil and suffering that right. has to happen. And so I'm allowing myself to say that God's might have reasons for allowing much more evil and suffering than I could ever tolerate mm-hmm. allowing. I would stop. I would, I would, there were a lot of things I would stop. Uh, but there might be some, I'm willing to hold on to the idea that there might be some reason that God has for allowing these depths of suffering that I, I can't, yeah. I can't relate to. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Okay, well, last one. So I'm hoping for a revival of the apocatastasis or apocatastasis approach <laughs> in modern Christianity. And I appreciate, this, I appreciate the subtle and articulate way that you're able to include the apocatastasis message and hope in your ministry. I mean, it's there, but you don't beat people over the head with it. And it doesn't, I, it doesn't help to do that. Yeah. Yeah, but I appreciate the way that you do that. So what are some things that you think will best help keep us moving more in this direction of more openness to Christians having an apocatastasis approach and allowing that to be a welcome and understood part of the Christian community going forward? Well, uh, the New Testament text itself, these passages of a universal hope, that is that in the end, we can hope for the NRSV, Acts 3.21, speaks of universal restoration. Um, there are those texts, and just let them sort of carry the load. You mentioned 1 Corinthians 15.28, that the end of all things— The telos. Yeah, the telos, the, where, where it's all going, is that in the end, God may be all in all. And then there are other passages, you know, that that in Colossians, maybe maybe I'll just 
Can I just read a little Bible to you? Yeah, the Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter one. If you it's, want to take your, if you want to take your Christology through the roof, go to Colossians right. one, and 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 you will find uh, the resources that you need to. Uh, that you I, need I to just, do that. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Colossians one, fifteen through we'll go 19, through 20. Yeah. 1920. Okay. Yeah. Listen listen to the all things. All listen how often you hear all things. He, Christ, is the image icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on in earth, by making peace through the blood of his cross. I, I don't think there's, in my mind, any doubt that the Apostle Paul believed that in the end, all things would be redeemed. I mean, passages like that. And then, and then if he says that the end is that, you know, pass and pass, that God shall be all in all. I... Mm-hmm. So, so if your question is, how do we go about this? I think we we um, maybe pull to the forefront some of these passages that have been somewhat uh, discreetly set aside because they were afraid of the implications. Uh, I'm I'm in no mood to advocate for any kind of cheap universalism. That is, you don't have to worry about anything. Every everything's fine. You don't have to worry. There's no hell. You know, we all just bang, you know, die and we're in heaven. I don't believe anything remotely like that, and I, I have no tolerance for that. But I do believe and hope that in the end God will be all in all, that there will be universal restoration, that, that all things will be reconciled in Christ. And these are just phrases out of Scripture, that the world will be saved because Jesus is the Savior of the world. You know, so I just let the Scripture itself... Uh, initiate that hope. And, mm-hmm. and I understand there are other passages of Scripture, and you, you can deal with those. Um, the last, well, this Sunday and next Sunday, we at, at Word of Life, we do adhere to the Revised Common Lectionary, and we will have a gospel reading each Sunday from the passage. And last Sunday, uh, we have Weeping and Gnashing of Teeth, and again, this Sunday, we have, uh, oh, I'll, just, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just turn to it. This Sunday it will it will have this passage here. Let me find it. Um, <clears throat> so the so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um. Well, that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth seems to imply that there is at least regret. Possibly that may lead to repentance. Yeah, the same thing happens in the outer darkness. That I mean, let, let's let's just say let's just say 
I'm trying to pick someone that I think people would be inclined to be rather malevolent toward. <laughs> Let's say that Vladimir Putin dies tonight. I don't think he gets like a warm handshake from Jesus and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you know. Enter into your joy. Enter. Here's your mansion. We got it all fixed up for you. It's almost as good as the one you had in Moscow. <laughs> I don't think that's what happens. I think there is the beginning of a judgment that at some point is going to lead to some weeping and gnashing of teeth. I just don't think it's the end of the story. That that you know, if you if you throw a human being into we're with the metaphor here into uh, into fire. I guess there's a little bit of it's not so much weeping and gnashing of teeth. There'd be a short shriek and they'd be dead. <laughs> right. So the, the idea here is though that there there is the emerging awareness of the predicament they place themselves in, and hopefully even an emerging awareness of the evil they have done. And yeah. and the and the thing is that evil or an evil doer, because that that phrase was used in in last week's reading. These are from the words of Jesus. Uh, this is the parable of the tares. It says, um, here we, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers and will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone has ears to hear, hear. Well, evildoers is not a technical term for all non-Christians. Um, when Jesus does talk, I mean, much of the time when Jesus appears to be talking about what we would call hell, he's often, I would say most often, referring to the impending catastrophe that's going to come upon Jerusalem within 40 years of A.D. 70. But at times, Jesus is clearly making some reference to a post-mortem afterlife judgment. All right, well... Who, who ends up in a, uh, a fiery judgment? Jesus calls them here in this passage evildoers. That's not a technical term for all non-Christians. I, I think that should be understood in a very pedestrian way, the way the common person would understand that phrase. Are there wicked people? There are wicked people. I don't think they are the predominance. I don't think most are, but there are wicked people. And so what are you going to do with the evildoer? Well, to begin with, they're going to face a fiery judgment and eventually be brought to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But maybe that's a good place to be. If you think of a, if you think of like an idiomine or someone like that, you know, you're someone that's you know, truly horrifically evil. Um, the moment they begin to weep and gnash their teeth, they're in a better place than they've probably ever been. You understand what I'm saying? Because yeah. there, there seems to be some awareness maybe even beginning of self-awareness of what's going on. Somebody could say it would just, well, they're just, they're just unhappy that they're in hell. Okay, but maybe that, you know, what I would then recommend is that, that people read The Last Farthing by George MacDonald, and it's, you can find it online for free. It's on lots of sites. Just Google George MacDonald, The Last Farthing, and he'll, he'll talk about that. I mean, Or maybe um, his book, Lilith. Yeah, well, that the thing is, the last farthing you can read in fifteen minutes. But yeah, right. I love it. I've read it four times. I love it. Uh, so, um, 
<clears throat> I just think weeping and gnashing of teeth is not the end of the story. It's really uh, contrary. Maybe it's counterintuitively. It's a hopeful beginning of a new chapter. Well, well, Brian, uh, you're really generous with your time. Um, cause you're somehow writing and doing pot little, you've you agreed to a lot of podcast interviews yeah. and you do these, uh, live streams. There's going to be another live stream that's going to come up. Why don't we just end up with, why don't you tell us about the next live stream that's I coming up? I don't remember so, when it is. <laughs> I don't have the date <laughs> in my head. Is it, when is it? Do you know? <laughs> I don't either. I know that it's coming up. It's, I gonna, know it's, it's a few months. It's, it's not right. just around the corner. Yeah, well, I'm going to work with with uh, what is my most recent book, which is When Everything's on Fire. Although I have a book on the cross that's complete, it'll come out in February, so it'll be before then. And we're going to deal with uh, some of the themes I hit in that book, and it's really it has to do with how to sustain faith in a secular age. So, yeah, and a lot of deconstruction. I think a lot right. of people will be able to relate to. Uh, to that live stream, but you'll be able to just keep checking it. WLC. Yeah, I, I know com. it is scheduled. I just don't have it off the top of my head. I think it's going to be sometime in November, maybe. I, that sounds right. <laughs> it, it seems, it seems like it was something like that. Well, uh, Brian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and thank you for being willing to give your, I don't know, your best reflections and thoughts over the course of your lifetime and your reading and your study and your ministry on these hot button topics. We, uh, we very much appreciate you. Thank you, David. It's always a joy to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.